from the team that brought you the award-winning show Retro Replay and the Emmy-nominated comedy series Con Man comes a new idea just crazy enough to be good. Introducing Couch Soup. I know, I know, you're probably wondering, what is Couch Soup? Well, Couch Soup is content for your hungry nerd soul. Daily articles from fans, not pundits. Weekly podcasts that contain a multiverse of opinions on all things pop culture. Exclusive videos and weekly live streams where we laugh, scream, and sometimes have technical difficulties. All created by folks like you, the gamers, the film nerds, the TV bingers, comic book lovers, bookworms, and pop culture enthusiasts, all in one giant bowl of beautiful, disgusting, soupy goodness at CouchSoup.com. All Things Alice. This podcast will explore the cultural phenomenon of Alice in Wonderland as artistic landmark and global symbol of inspiration and imagination. I'm your host, Frank Bedore, the author of the Looking Glass Wars trilogy. Let's explore what is it about Alice? Welcome back to the show, everybody. Today is part two of my interview with Ken Friedman. Why is it part two? Because he has a lot of really good stories about Hollywood, movie stars, movies he's worked on. And I want to get into the nuts and bolts of writing television, writing film, creating story, and how all of us can be more creative, more authentic, and fully realize our voice when it comes to creating. Okay? So, Kenny, part two. Let's do it. So we left off talking about your movie, The Fugitive, and the work on The Fugitive you did. By the way, I watched it again with Teresa, my new wife, um, and, uh, and thanks for coming to the wedding. Uh, <laughs> um, and it's such a terrific movie. I mean, it is the perfect Hollywood blockbuster in terms of setting up a character that's smart and compelling with a uh, antagonist in Tommy Lee Jones that's just as compelling, uh, charismatic. And so you have these two characters that both are highly skilled, really dueling it out. And I found the movie even, what is it, 20 years later, 25 years later, to be fantastic. So congrats on that. Um, but I wanted to jump into uh, Cadillac Man. Tell me about uh, that movie, working with Robin w Williams, and Roger directed it. Yeah, that was a great experience. Yeah? Uh, I had, uh, it, was, it was after I had directed, we talked about Made in USA, mm -hmm. having completed that picture, um, I bought myself a little present, <laughs> which I needed because uh, because of the difficulties of completing the film and the fights with John Daly over the cut. I was uh, what did you buy yourself? Hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. I needed a break, so uh, we went to Hong Kong. I went with Jim Newport, uh, production designer, uh, that, uh, on Made in USA and White Line Fever and Heart Like a Wheel, and one of my best friends. And we went to Hong Kong and uh, had a had a, a great time. And while, while I was there, I noticed that every man of means in uh, Hong Kong had 
uh, a family with children who lived up on top of the big mountain overlooking Hong Kong and some condom, 3,000 square foot condominium with a great view, the two kids and the nanny. And then he had a mistress who was maybe 10, 15 years younger than him, an accomplished woman who wasn't interested in marriage, just somebody you could take on business meetings, and of course have sex with too. That was kind of your respectful partner. And then they had a new girlfriend, probably a college student, or putting up quote fingers, college student, and uh, they went to these other restaurants. It was a whole different set of restaurants and shows and movies for Hong Kong shikari, I think they called it, with lots of mirrors and flash. And So he had his girlfriend who he was helping out and supporting. And then they still found reason to go to Bangkok on business every three weeks. So when I got, I got back to um, L.A., uh, I was thinking about that would be a good story, to do a story about a guy in New York who's juggling a wife, a daughter, a girlfriend, uh, a, a mistress, uh, and is overwhelmed by these various relationships and kind of in love with them all. So that was the idea I had. And uh, off of Made in USA, I had an uh, arrangement uh, to uh, develop films at Orion, which was a studio back in the early, mm-hmm. uh, right. late, late 80s. They'd be very successful. Yeah, they, they did Dan- Dancing with Wolves. And, oh, right. And then... Silence of the Lambs. Silence oh, of the Lambs. All oh, right. So they, they were very good. And I was uh, working on that idea. And there was a very good executive, uh, store executive, Michael Barlow, who worked at Columbia at that time. And I was just not, I said, what's your story? And about halfway through, he says, wait a minute. And he runs down the hall. He comes back with the six-foot-two Australian director who had just done Cocktail, Roger Donaldson. And uh, Roger came in, and so he, he was had a deal to develop and direct pictures at Orion. And uh, he was looking for a story. He was looking for a, a movie to develop. Michael put us together. And he said, Roger, what film? Uh, uh, this is Roger Donaldson. Hi. We had the same agent. We had never met. And so we you know, shook hands. It was great. He said, Roger, what do you want to do? And he said, my father was a car salesman. I want to do a movie about a car salesman. Okay. And I want to call it Cadillac Man. Okay. And I said, okay, here's a story. Uh, and, <laughs> and, I, and I pitched the a story about the guy juggling, and without knowing actually Roger's early films in New Zealand where he developed his career, were all about uh, cheating husbands and cheating wives. And so he, he immediately uh, said, this is great. Michael had made the deal. He said, okay, let's go down and tell it to Mike, Mike Metavoy being the head of Orion at the time. And we go into Mike's office. It was a great place. Doors were open. And Barlow says, listen to the story the guys had. And we got about 10 minutes through the pitch about the girlfriends. And the, and he said, who's your agent? I said, Harry Elflin. Uh No, I was uh, Jeff Sanford at the time. And uh, he said, um, okay, I'll call your agent. And so we want to do this. We'll develop the deal. We'll figure out the money later. We'll send Ken a check for $10,000 and get him started and work out the details. So are you okay with me? I said, it's okay with me. <laughs> I tell the story. It was not a comedy. Roger didn't do comedy. And I certainly had no reputation for doing comedy. 
you know, though if something was funny, it was good. You know, uh, laughter is good even in a dark film. So we we told the story. Uh, we began working on the story. Roger went off to direct the movie that he was directing with uh, Orion, and uh, so I had about three months window to write the script, and I was working with Barlow. And my initial thought is that the uh, that Al, they had a deal with Al Pacino, and they said Cadillac Man, New York, Al Pacino. That was all part of the package mm-hmm. that Orion was dealing with. So you know, you didn't think Al and think comedy, and um, so uh, we thought we'd do a twist on. Uh, when it came to the story we were going to tell, now we had the character and we kind of had the theme, and we had a director, um, and we thought what might be good is you know he had just done Dog Day Afternoon, and where he was the hostage taker, in a hostage situation, and we said why don't we do the reverse and have him be the hostage, taken, mm-hmm. and we were thinking that uh, you know Cadillac Man luxury item symbol of capitalistic America. What if the uh, what if it, it, there was an armory near a car dealership and there were these radicals from the 60s stole some guns, the cops chased them, they took, they took refuge in the dealership, and then you'd have a love story dialectic with, uh, you know, the capitalist car salesman, with the radical, is that what you had pitched, or this no, no, was coming no. out of all we had, all, all I had pitched was the, was the fact that somebody had all these relationships. relationships. Okay, you know, but we didn't have a story, right? So, you just... but you know, so on top of all the relationships that the car dealer was dealing with, he now had to develop a relationship with a woman that was completely different than all the other women in his life. And in, in a hostage situation. But it was difficult to write, you know. And I was sitting with Barlow one day, and we were talking about the same conversation we're having now. We're talking story, uh, you know, which is really what we do. You know, and I think I said, you know what would be funny? All these women that he's sleeping with, and the one, there's one woman in the car dealership that he can't get, and her husband... Is the one who breaks into the dealership uh, because he thinks it's what's going to catch his wife cheating on him, <laughs> and uh, and forget the politics and forget all of that. So uh, you know, we came up with a different situation, and I began writing it, and it just made sense. It was the idea with the character wrote itself, and it was about selling. You know, it's a movie about selling. And, uh, you know, that's what we do as filmmakers. We sell. We sell like shit. We sell like hell. You know, we go in there, we pitch, we try to sell our ideas, convince people that our ideas for the movie are right and get and hope they get on the same boat with us. So the uh, same boat as the creators. When you, t- when you talk to your students at N- NYU, uh, do you talk to them about do you mention that whole idea if it starts to write itself if you fit if you you know that you know you're onto something or if you're stuck maybe you're not in the right story yeah i mean you you, you need to be flexible and you, you know, there's exploration mm-hmm. you know it's just part of writing you go down a lot of dread ends i'm sure i wrote write two three hundred pages for a hundred page script you know you try stuff 
you get out of your head and onto the paper. But what do you what do you say to students who need to go pitch? I mean, you had you had a a little bit of a track record, obviously a track record. Uh, you had Roger interested. You had a you know a broad kind of conceptual idea that you know was easy to understand, but you really didn't have the story story. So when you go in to pitch something to a studio executive, is the difference back then that you can go in with something that loose and find it, and these days you have to come in with it fully realized, or this is a, you know, we're in the midst of a writer's strike now, and we can talk about that as well. There were periodic writer's strikes. The nature of the business changes. And, uh, you know, I was very fortunate to live and work here in the 80s and 90s, uh, and 70s too, um, when the studios, the people who finance movies, we're very interested in having the creators, the actors, producer, director come to come to them with projects. They were in the business of developing ideas into stories, and cer- certainly in the eighties, um, the studios had big staffs of um, production executives, development executives, development executives, uh, and production. Too, yeah. You know, would, would yeah, the whole thing. Talk about the, the costs. Uh, they have an apparatus, and they developed five or ten movies for every one they made. Uh, it kept a lot of writers employed, uh, encouraged to come up with their own original ideas, which they would get the studios to do. And if it didn't happen, the, the ideas, the scripts might bounce back to another producer. But there were like hundreds of scripts just all over town. And uh, the business was set up to get many writers to develop their abilities and develop their stories. Sometimes they get made, sometimes they didn't. I, I estimate I've written 80 screenplays uh, and mm. teleplays wow. and had 20 made. But the difference is you're saying taking an idea and finding the story. These days, not only do you have to come in with the story, you have to come in with the whole script sometimes and the package, and a piece of financing, and an actor. So it's very difficult. And if right away, if they don't like the idea, they don't want to read the story or the script, and they don't want to develop it. So is that the distinction that I I, I was a contract see? writer. And uh, of those uh, 80 films, scripts that I wrote, or wrote on, you know, not mm-hmm. uh, right. or rewrote, Mm-hmm. Uh, and I said twenty got made. I was only not paid on one. Got it. I I was a contract writer. I was helping. For me, it was a lot of fun, you know, to say, okay, this movie is going to be one that for an actor or producer, you know. I, I think uh, you know, helping Chuck, helping Jonathan, helping Roger, Walter, you know, work work on scripts. Sometimes I worked on on scripts or studios and often in collaboration with uh, other including with producers and directors so the way that we worked on the films that we talked about was very collaborative and the studio system in the 80s and the 90s you know relied upon the filmmakers to come up with the ideas for movies and packs the studios would kind of package stuff together but now you have many ideas and movies that are driven by the studios, driven by the mark, you know, 
all the the Marvel world, the DC world, pre-existing IP. Yeah, but the same idea. You know, there's still collaboration. They're still, you know, looking to develop. Uh, if you know, especially if it's within their DC or Marvel uh, universe, it's just you don't have the middle ground, the diversity of interesting ideas that. You know, like Cadillac Man, that are just, hey, this is kind of a cool idea. Let's yeah, see where this idea leads us. Yeah, and, uh, you know, ultimately, and to finish the story, uh, I had uh, I was talking with him about, so we came up with this other idea about the hostage taker yeah. being a jealous, cuckolded husband. And uh, I walked down the, the road, the offices in Ryan and past Mike Medavoy, you know, and he says, how's that picture coming along? How's the writing good? And I said, good, but it's funny. And he said, funny is good. <laughs> Go finish it. And so then, you sold it. You sold it as a drama, and when you character piece, character piece. But you know, given the politics you were talking about, it's closer it's to a serious drama. film. Yeah, serious film. I mean, you're talking about Pacino. By the way, I think um, Pacino could have done it and well, well as well. Would have been a different movie, but it still would have been funny without. Yeah. Uh, but Robin, good guy. Good and job. what did he bring uh, to? Obviously, he's you know hugely talented. But did he did he improvise uh, a lot of dialogue? Was he collaborative on the set? Did Roger, you know, encourage him or try and rein him in? It, 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 it was a great situation. I was on the set all the time. Robin, early on, came to me and said, you know, the reason I'm doing this film is because I love the script. The script, it's a great read. If I, if I gave you the script now to read, you'd say, let's make this. Um, in certain ways, it's better than the movie. But, of course, you know, they, who wouldn't want Robin to, to do, his, do his stuff, you know? He's funny, he's insightful, uh, he comes up with stuff. But he was smart enough to say, I don't want to mess up with the story. I don't want to change the story and change the character. We agreed we'd get a take on whatever scene that we were shooting as it was written in the script. It might take two, three, four. Okay. You know, but we'd always get a take of the way and then open it up. Okay. Tim Robbins also was, you know, well-known uh, actor able to improvise. Sure. So the two of them were like, really great together. Uh, but that was kind of the rule. Get one as it was in the script and then then go to town and see what you come up with. But even more than that, we had table reads of the script uh, in the weeks just before shooting. And therefore, there was no reason to hold back. So if they tried things and improvised on the table read, which we encouraged them to do, you know, I was sitting there and I'd make a little note. This was a good idea. That was a bad idea. And the next, and that night, go back and work for a couple of hours, update the pages. You know, mm -hmm. the day before, this was all digitized. Um, color coded. You know, yeah, we color coded pages. I'd show up at eight a.m. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in rehearsals, and they'd see, oh, that wasn't a good direction to take it in. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, but this has now found its way in the script. So I'd rewrite the, the dialogue scenes as we w worked and rehearsed them to reflect when they came up with good stuff. And I think it helped them own, own the story. I, I've never been afraid to let you know, actors improve upon my dialogue change, and take the credit for it. 
So it sounds like a dream project. I mean, it sounds, you know, you... you of all the films I uh, ever worked on, from idea, uh, let's say for that, Roger and I agreeing to make a, a film about Joey O'Brien, mm-hmm. the characters that Robin played. From the moment we had that meeting, which I think was in August to September, to the first day of shooting, which was in February, was six months. Uh, you know, well, it, that's it, extraordinary. It's extraordinary. extraordinary. Nothing else. No project I've worked on before or since has been under a year, for sure. And sometimes it takes years and years, as you know. Yeah. Uh, so this one was like handshake deal, write the script. They read the script. Uh, you know, Roger read the script when he came back. He said, I'm ready to do it. You know, studio green let the let's, movie. We submitted it. I think on January fifteenth to Orion and Michael Barlow called me back within three days and said, "It's green lit. We're making it." <laughs> wow! But you yeah. know, uh, but uh, we want to go with Robin first, and we said, "Well, of course." So um, that's a dream project. And he came back within a couple of days and said, uh, "You know that he would do it," and we're off and running. That's extraordinary because that just doesn't happen uh, anymore. Uh, movies coming together that quickly. Uh, what? No, not before, not since. No. Well, you know, and something about Mary, it came together within six months um, after the Farrelly brothers did their pass and after it was written. After it was written. Yeah, no, this but yours was before it was written. Yeah. So no, I mean, uh, even White Line Fever, which was fast, I think was probably your. So it was fast on that side. You had a good relationship with Roger. You were on the set a lot. You know, uh, yeah, we were a bunch of friends. Like Robin Williams was respectful, um, and it sounds it sounds great. I don't remember you having the same experience with Johnny Handsome. Oh no, that was was that a good well, experience? I can't remember with uh, Mickey Rourke. Yeah. So, uh, well, it was difficult until it happened. So difficult uh, to get the movie going. Yeah, uh, Chuck a- after Heart Chuck Like Rose. a Wheel. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chuck produced. Heart like I wrote. Wheel. Jonathan directed. But Chuck and I. Chuck had a book called The Three Three Worlds or Three Faces of of Johnny Handsome. Mm. And uh, we liked the idea of the book, but not the story or the character or the style or the execution or much of anything. <laughs> just well, so the did- just the idea. That uh, this guy would how, how often does that happen? And when the producer buys a book like that, um, and he obviously, Chuck obviously saw something in it, and then you have to adapt it, that you throw out, it must not have been a very well-known book, because lots of times, if you have a... He had, he had a published writer, but no. So you, so you, you, you basically had... It was not literature. Launch. You know, I, I've done... Adaptations where you really want to. Yeah, if you're doing Lord of the Rings, you you you, you know, want to. Yes, you better get it right. You want to make it for people who've seen it, who've read it. Johnny Handsome, that was my never. Okay, read. so you so that's what I'm saying. So in this case, you the writer of the novel was okay with you. I don't know if he was okay. He might have been dead. So oh, not. okay. So you just were free to. It wasn't a new book. You were free to adapt, take the idea, and run with it. Yeah, or I mean, and that's what, that's what Chuck wanted to do. Um, and, uh, Chuck, I think was in business with his brother, Fred, on that particular book. And, uh, you know, they thought it was a good idea for kind of noir 
film. Uh, you know, and it was a, a potential for a really good character. But uh, they had made a, a movie about a guy who changes his face. I think it was a Humphrey Bogart film uh, in, the, in the 40s. And, uh, you know, but that was that was like <laughs> go in for a week, come out a different person. You know, it was a fantastical, you know. But when we made Johnny Handsome, that kind of surgery to... Well, to, I don't think the audience knows the, the what the premise Johnny is. Johnny Handsome is the lead of this book, uh, and the, the movie um, is somebody born with a deformity, kind of like the elephant man. Okay. Uh, cleft palate and large head, a lot of... Uh, some a, a, a lot of physical deformities that made him really even hard to look like, and obviously no woman would be interested in him, and no segment of society would have anything to do with him, uh, except the criminal world where they only wanted. He was a, a master at coming up with bank robberies and they wanted uh, to armed exploit. robberies, and uh, so the movie starts um, with. Uh, him uh, involved in a robbery with uh, three other people, one of whom is his only friend in the world. And the other couple, Lance Hendrickson and Ellen Barkin, amazing cast, double-cross him, shoot his best friend, leave him to be taken by the cops and make off with the loot, and double-cross him. Mm. And Johnny Handsome, then Morgan Freeman, mm. plays the cop in the film, uh, oh, you know, wow. it says, who, who was in it with you? Who got away with the jewels? They killed your best friend. They nearly killed you. Uh, they're leaving you to take the blame. But the only code that he's known in his life is the code of the criminal, and he's not going to give it in. They send him to Angola. It takes place in New Orleans. They send Johnny Handsome to Angola prison. And even, and he's there for two, for a year serving a 30 year armed robbery sentence because he won't give up his cohorts. Mm hmm. Um, He's and even stitch. then, even then, Ellen and, and don't trust that he might not rat on them in the future. So they have him killed in prison. Except he doesn't die, and he's in the prison hospital, barely survived. A doctor comes into seeing Forrest Whitaker, another great. Wow, uh, comes oh, amazing in. Amazing cast. It, it is, and um, he comes in and he says. You know, well, I'm part of a program. Basically, if we do two years of surgeries and you learn to speak and do this all over again, we can make you look like a look like a member of society. We believe that uh, if you're not treated like a criminal, you may not have the need to be one. So reinvent yourself. He volunteers and goes through two years of excruciating therapies and. Um, is cut loose to see what's going to happen to him. Is mm. he going to get is, is it the revenge stronger, or is the love? Uh, Elizabeth Montgomery mm. plays uh, another great wo woman who meets him, and he starts to have a relationship with her. And uh, so, what will he do? That was the story. The first script was pretty damn good. The third script was really good. So Chuck was trying to find a director so that they could make the movie and uh, star. And we there were talks with Richard Gere and this one, that one. Three directors, as far as I know. It was went to further development with Peter Goober, with Paramount. We had deals uh, 
I forget, with the British director who died young. It was really good. Nobody was going to get it made. And we had finally had this director, Harold Becker. Mm-hmm. And Harold uh, was, I, I tell the story because I don't give a shit anymore. This was uh, just, uh, just after Made in USA, after I came back from my trip with Hong Kong. And just before I started the, the film, was, well, it was a, a little bit after that. You started Cadillac Man. Yeah, yeah. B- before Cadillac Man. And Harold got involved, and he had notes, which I didn't think were so hot. But, well, you know, it's Chuck's movie, and I'm getting paid a little incrementally on these things. But I have an investment, because we've been developing this now for five or six years. Wow, yeah. With uh, three or four different directors and producers and notes. And the script has gotten a little bit, you know, satisfying too many people. And I, and I got distracted, you know, in terms of having time to work on it. Uh, with making Made in USA, and Chuck too, because he was working on it. So Harold got involved, and he had a relationship with Richard Gere, and I worked with uh, I worked with Harold. Even flew up to Vail to, to have story conferences. We go to a meeting at the Imperial Palace. You remember that? Uh, sure. Uh, with Gere, Chuck, me, Harold. Before Gear arrives. Harold, uh, Harold, well, as Gear arrives and sits down, good guy, takes the script, Harold does, that we've been working on months on, and slides it over to Gear and says, but we can fix it. Oh, man. That's not the first impression you want. So anyway, Gear didn't do it. They went to Pacino, because Harold had directed Pacino, and Pacino then had uh, his staff of writers worked on it. <sighs> And uh, he had a staff of writers, what well, that yeah, mean? one in a time. He had writers that he worked with, all no, oh. not all oh, I see named writers. And they spent, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of dollars more. I got fired basically. Pacino kept bringing in another writer who did this and did that. This guy, he had all these New York writers, and they'd come in and they'd take a draft and get paid some money. And everyone who went in, then I think Chuck will even tell you this, made it worse. <laughs> And, you know, it, it just did not have a, you know, and Chuck had an opinion, too, about, you know, about the, at the, the end, the character was saved and takes an opportunity for a new life. So it had, a, even though there was a lot of death into the Having worked with Chuck, he usually has very strong opinions and is often the driver of... Well, I think, I think at this time... The story Yeah, is you know, he... So did I he mean, protect he, it or did he... Well, I don't know. I wasn't. I wasn't yeah, in the meetings. Um, you know, all I knew is that I was gone. And then, and then at, at some point, um, Chuck tells his story better than me, so I'm not going to tell his story. But Pacino left the project, and Harold Becker with him. And uh, he came back to me, and he said, "Were there any elements?" <laughs> and I said, "There was this one thing that uh, one of the writers came up with that I thought was good in terms of and." He then, but Chuck is dogged. I mean, he... That is true. You know, so he finally took it to uh, uh, to Coralco, uh, and they had a, a deal with Walter Hill, and I knew Walter. So Walter uh, read the script, and, and he was interested. He said he read all seven scripts plus the five that Pacino had developed, and he came back and he said, Friedman number three. <laughs> <laughs> And Wait, seven that uh, plus the how many? I think five, five different drafts came out of the Pacino era. That's in the film. And that, he went back to and 
That's discipline. And he said, and, and you know, and I sat and worked with uh, Walter, and I can tell many great stories. It was one of my great professional. It was just every like sitting and talking with you, you know, except except unlike us, he knew everything about movies. Right. And history and had worked with these people and had done a documentary about John Ford. And, you know, and I knew Walter and he, he he was a great guy and a great guy to work with and somebody who respected writers because he was one himself. Uh, one of the great writers. And um, so uh, I worked with Walter and uh, there was a disagreement about whether the ending should be a positive or uh, mm-hmm. a or so he should, or a noir, should be the a noir or a blanc. Yeah. Um, and uh, he, you know, he said, no, no, Johnny Hanson, this is a noir, and this is what happens in noirs. And, uh, they, and so, there, were, there were many discussions, but uh, by the time we started the movie, we were all on board. Mickey Rourke? How did that come about? I, I had a very good relationship with Mickey. I don't know how they... What brought him into the picture? He did a great job in the movie, and he he and Roger, you know, Mickey needs an enemy, and I think it was Chuck, but he but he was very he worked very well with, uh, you know, he didn't like to say a lot of dialogue like a lot of movie stars. He didn't want dialogue, so we spent time paring the dialogue down, and considering the history of, of the character, you know, he would be very kept in and close, not used to speaking. And expressing himself that way, so uh, you know, I think his desires to cut his dialogue uh, were helped. You know, he he knows what he can do, right? You know, and uh, what his strengths are. There's something going on in uh, inside Mickey. Now, he was remarkable, and he was one of those you know uh, filmmakers or actors that uh, had a stretch where. He was so compelling to watch. Not since maybe Brando was I so drawn into an actor. No, we got we got him in, at his height. Yeah, and uh, you know, actually, it sounds strange, but he and I played racquetball uh, several times a week during the production. Never talk about the movie though. That's amazing. You know how uh, whatever was whatever internal stuff was going on in Mickey. You know, he used it in the character. He didn't use it in his life. Who won in racquetball, generally speaking? Generally, I did. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. So how did he take that? He was fine, you know. Producers were the enemy. Yeah. All us creative people, you know. Yeah. You know, we were all suffering under the yoke of the man. So when you adapt uh, a book that's not very well known, you can really take the ideas or a theme and, and go go somewhere that uh, might be interesting or different from what the intention of the book is. What's your take when you, you're working on something that's well-established? Um, you know, I mentioned earlier Lord of the Rings. Uh, you know, that's an epic book that Peter Jackson seemed to find the thread uh, that was accepted by longtime readers um, even though left out big sections so when you when you take on an adaptation 
what do you tell your students? What would you what What would you do? You know, if, you if start? it's a piece of literature, I feel there are times when I feel I want to work with the author if he's available, and and I, I want to interpret uh, cinematically his story. I don't want to make it my story and, or her story. And there are things or her story. Things you know, uh, an adaptation of like. Heart Like a Wheel about Shirley Muldowney. Mm-hmm. It was a person who I liked and a person who I followed and a person who was still active in their career. So I felt uh, doing a, a story uh, about a person active in their career. So real life I had a responsibility. Well, it was a biography, though, wasn't yes. it? So did but you it's work? an adaptation of a yeah. life. It's a similar process. If uh, the book is out and people are reading it and uh, I liked it, I liked the... Uh, the world and characters that the author established. Uh, I'd like to work with him. I'd say him and her, but I didn't really work with him. Tried to interpret the book, you know, and, and the people who, I said it was a contract writer. So people had taken the book because they were interested in the story, character, and I wanted to, to interpret it cinematically, but also write it in a way that was readable. Right. You know, uh, the readability of this novel is different than the readability of the script. So, you know, sometimes it was, it was translating. And, but more of the time, uh, the book or article or life, uh, suggested something. And I always went by the, for, for myself, the greater truth. Who was this person? What, what was at their core? It's the greater truth. Not did this happen on August 15th. We talked. We talked about those kind of uh, chronological picks being yeah. like, and then this happened, and then this happened, and this happened. So with Heart Like a Wheel, well, it was adapting real events in her life, but interpreting them f- cinematically to really try to get underneath uh, Shirley. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a book uh, that I adapted that didn't get made called Garbage. It was like one of my. Oh, I remember that. You, know, great, you love a, that project. I did. I was meant to direct it after, mm. but then Orion went out of business mm. and MGM bought all their properties and tied <sighs> them up. Yeah. Happens. But that, that, that book was good. But it was good for the voice of the character, but I needed to build a different story than the, than the, the book had. So when you're adapting and when you say you're trying to find the greater truth, it's you're trying to find the greater truth in the character first and then the story arcs and the narrative once you have... After. Right, after. You have to have that first. Yeah. I mean, there's uh, the, the different writers have different processes and how they develop stories and, you know, so uh, there's no not one way to get there, but we all know when we've arrived. Right. Yeah. I found it, um, you know, really challenging to find a structure for the Looking Glass Wars when I was working on it as a movie property because of the age of the protagonist as Alice starts at um, seven and then we see her at 13 and then she's a 20 year old. And so it takes place over 13 years and it was a lot of territory to cover in a two or two and a half hour movie. Um, and I was never really able to separate myself from the material uh, in a way that would do what you're talking about, was find sort of the, the truth of the, of the character in the piece. 
until you and I started talking about it as a TV show. Um, because as a t- television show, then that 13-year span and that life that Alice had both in Wonderland, then in our world, and then back in Wonderland made a lot of sense um, over eight episodes. Um, and back when you were writing movies, movies were such a driving force you know, of pop culture and the place to be. Now it seems to be in television, unless you're in the Marvel universe, the DC universe. So how much of the, um, of the, your teaching at NYU has switched from movie making to writing, writing for television? And what's the difference in your approach with your students? A good story is a good story to begin with. I was responsible for developing the TV uh, part of the program, because uh, I had done it at the grid. Just it was my last job, next to last job, before I went to NYU. So at, at the time, I was really plugged into the TV world and uh, my experience about how to develop ideas uh, into long-form stories. I think that uh, what... The way uh, people should uh, develop their projects was different and different at the time that we talked about uh, Alice's great potential and still has it as a as a TV series. Um, you know, I probably look at it differently now. N- n- not the final product, but the entry the, point. Yeah, the way to the way to. Uh, Tell the story. I was very excited after I saw the Queen's Gambit and yeah. the first episode. And, you know, it used to be I that, that you couldn't start with the young kid and stay with the young actress or actor because the audience would get behind that person. But in the, um, it was seamless and um, uh, Scott Frank did an amazing job. Most intriguing of the writer to do a limited series, hmm. you know, because it has an end. Mm-hmm. And it all fits together, you know. I, I love series that are open ended, and they go on and on. Some, you know, they change, and they, you know. So uh, yeah, I watched Yellowstone and I, you know, Succession, and you know, those are fun. But really, um, in, in terms of the writer expressing himself in this media, um, limited series is great. In terms of you know deciding on a project i mean i think one of the things i remember you saying is you know what's the show yeah and when you say what's the show what do you mean by that exactly what's the experience that uh, you're meant to have so are you are what are you selling are you selling the environment are you selling all of it all of it so when you say okay what's the show you put those pieces together in your mind and then you develop those from from your yeah. from your work process, you start. You know, with- and, I, and, I, and I think there's a, a document, uh, whether it's a treatment or character or verbal pitch, or you know, you're, you're trying to describe. You can't go into so much detail. Mm-hmm. Uh, but how how can you uh, d- describe what it what it is that this television series is or, or limited series 
is going to deliver. Yeah, I remember you saying to me, you know, you're you're selling the environment of um, Victorian England and Wonderland. You're selling what happened, what happened to Alice being exiled, and m- then you're selling the situation that this girl finds herself in, and then you're developing the story arc of how she's going to navigate in those worlds that you've set up. Well, you had and done a lot of work and written the, the story right. was actually there in the novels. Um, and the, the, the essential characters of, of Alice were in the novels. Right. Um, and there was some expansion, I think, we talked about in the Victorian world. Because mm-hmm. you had two fish out of water in a way. Mm-hmm. That she came from Wonderland under the situation she was, the coup, and and then was dropped into Victorian England. That, I thought, was, I still feel, was a compelling character that, that I wanted to watch. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, you know, you really tell that, uh, tell that story, and I'll really begin to... Lean in. I really want her to find herself. Mm-hmm. And now that she's found herself in the real world, can she go back and find herself again in the fantasy world it's about inner creativity and and you know being an artist in this cruel world but uh yeah the imagination was also something that you landed on it's that's the theme in the book and you always encouraged me to land on that in the uh in the tv show that thematically it's about creativity and an imaginative person, a creative person, um, basically, who's being denied in a very kind of repressive place and has all this potential. And like Lewis Carroll, thematically, it's who am I? And this is her journey to find... To juggle the internal and external yeah, life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. find her way home. Yeah. So it's also got a little Wizard of Oz aspect of it. So you and I should uh, I continue it, to talk about it. Continue. I, I remember we talked at some point... Can she div- divide herself mm. and exist in both worlds? Well, that was the end of uh, my first book. Yeah, and she creates a doppelganger that lives in this world to, to you know, to live out the life that history knows. Meanwhile, she yeah has yeah. her journey in book two and book three. Yeah. So and but turns out that when Red comes to our world in the second book, yeah that doppelganger is put into jeopardy and the family that she lives with is in jeopardy. Yeah, so, so but it's still about... Yeah, a, it's, a, a it's about juggling, it's juggling the two worlds. You know, and and sometimes you're bringing your creativity, LGBT, yeah. you know, your, your creativity yourself as a... Even, even now as I say that, I say how topical this story is. Juggling your, yourself and your creative inner world and... What that brings down to people in your in your other world. Another thing that you often talk about is the subjective point of view and the objective point of view. Yeah, well, it's it's, it's not just me, you know. No, but you're, you you bring that home a lot uh, in conversation. I, I think it's you want to clarify what yeah. you're doing. Yeah, you know, and uh, if you're making a subjective movie, you're experiencing the events with the. Uh, character you don't know more any more about the world than what you see through their eyes or through their through their experience it would be that technical Mm -hmm. but basically you're writing a story where you leave characters in every scene yeah 
um, you can go from the subjective to the objective uh, in the course of your story. Hitchcock does that a lot. But you can't go back. Right. You know? I bet you teach that often to your students. Yeah. Well, I, I wouldn't say that's a teaching thought. That's just, you know, the, the, the teaching thing is a question of character logic and story logic. Right. Right. Uh, and uh, subjectivity, objectivity is a function of, uh, you know, but first, you know, make your story make sense and make yeah, your good character. writing. Make your character make sense. Right. And, you know, and you may have to dig deep for that. Not not a given. <laughs> it really isn't. Um, you know, it was five years on The Looking Glass Wars because because of that digging for the character and the world creation, the logic, the rules, you know. The same for Hatter. Yeah, you know. same for I Hatter. I mean, that was another character that did not exist in any form, really, in in Lewis Carroll's books. Exactly. Um, and it was kind of the mirror image uh, of uh, Alice, you know. And we worked on that story idea of, you know, following Alice and following Hatter during those Thirteen years, yeah, and having them come together as a team, yeah. I still that that still sounds good on paper. It does, <laughs> yeah. A lot of things sound good on paper, yeah. Um, you know, translating them or pitching them or getting folks to uh, believe in them. But um, I've uh, I've you know I've loved working in the you know Alice space. Uh, I've loved working in the Alice space with you, and. Uh, Let's see if yeah, you had a lot of good writers working on it. It's a big story, you know. Yeah. I like to it's, all the writers you had working on that. You should get in a writers' room. Well, I did do a I did do a writers' room with Ed Dector and um, some folks that had worked on the graphic novels with me. So, so it was it was it was it was really fun. But you know, things keep changing in terms of the business in terms of the size of productions, the structure of things, as we talked about the Queen's Gambit, I think I would, you know, might think about a little bit different approach. So, but yeah, but you know, there's uh, there's more to come. So more to come. So uh, once again, a very compelling conversation. Uh, when do you go back to uh, NYU and start teaching again? Fall. In the fall? Uh, it usually starts the last week of August. So, uh, and I heard you you mentioned you're writing a novel or a couple of novels. I am writing. Well, I have two novels. Yeah. So, uh, did you, did I give one to you? Not yet. Mm. So I, I wrote one to see if I could do it. Mm-hmm. And that sounds like something that I did. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought it came out really good, but I I wasn't. Um, you know, you turned me on to some agents, and you know there were people and wanted to get involved in the project. Uh, you know, I thought it was done. It was a very difficult voice, um, dark coming from a dark and funny place. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, I wasn't. You know, it wasn't that their ideas were good or bad. It just was. You know, having worked all my life in the structure in in, in something that's collaborative. Yes. And expecting that I'm going to have to, you know... Change things. Change things and fight for my ideas. And, you know, didn't want to do it then. I don't, did not have any desire. So, you know, some of my colleagues read it. Some of my friends read it. It's, 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 it's offensive. Mm. 
I think it's funny, but it's quite offensive. Okay. And it's not politically correct. Okay, well. Not woke. In but, these uh, days, uh, it's probably difficult to get going, but uh, I'd still like to read it. So oh, yeah, no, no. I'm, I'm, and I'm not interested in it, in it being developed exactly. I yeah. mean, you know, it was fun to write, and it's fun for me to reread. Um, but I don't... Don't feel any like legacy need to yeah. have uh, you know the I wrote that as a kind of just to see if I could write prose, and so I went on to uh, write my family story hmm. and uh, your personal family story by my, my oh. mother's side, yeah, as a novel, right? Um, not as a biography. I don't. Right. I only know enough about it as a novel. Right. I don't know enough about it. But putting yourself into your mother's head and your grandparents and mm. trying to figure out their lives. Um, yeah, some stories just need to be told for lots of personal reasons. and Yeah, I mean, this is for finds, my daughter to read at some yeah. point, my sister to read, you know. And right. uh, uh, it's, you know, but putting in a lot of time to getting it uh, and having to go through this selling of editor, publisher, yeah. Agent. It was just as much, you know, just as many levels. By the time I got to the end, it would be changed. That was okay with the movie because the actors and director were going to change it anyway. Um, but the book, you know, to go through that for no reason. Well, generally in publishing, though, they, you know, as the author, they make suggestions. If they want to buy the book, then they, they're buying you and what's there. And they're not going to force you to change things. I remember the Looking Glass Wars. They said, hey, these are all their suggestions. Um, and they never, they never forced me to make any changes. They, the editor made recommendations. If I didn't make those changes, then the copy editor made the same recommendation. So they had two bites at the apple but at the end of the day it was really up to me now they were terrific and i made tons of the changes but unlike the movie business you know you felt like it was really up to you're the author you it's your book you decide how you want it to be yeah but you still have to have that conversation well you they have to buy into it if they buy into it if they don't buy it then then they're not interested because they don't expect you to do all those changes. Yeah. It's not. It's it's a completely different animal, which is well, why writing novels is so great if they buy into your. Well, series. you're more experienced in that than I've been, yeah. and far more successful. But as you've, uh, I, I, I did bring a copy of the, the novel with you, so I will bring it to you. Okay. Okay. Great. Well, thank you, Ken. It was a pleasure to. Uh, okay, and uh, to, to you know, some someday when I get my website up, you can point. Yes, to my yes, and, you and should then get be. more of, and you'll come and visit me. Yeah, well, I'll do your podcast. That's one of the uh, important ways to um, is to uh, grow the community. Yeah, because I'm interested in your day to day process as a writer, but we'll hold that off. Okay, okay, <laughs> I'd love to share. I'd love okay. to be on the other side of this Q and Q and A. So right. thanks. Yeah.